0: My name's Beverly Tiefel, and I've been involved in habits in, oh, I don't know, 20-plus-some years. Um, I love studying God's Word and just gleaning all the nuggets of truth that the Lord has for me to learn. I've been married to my husband, Jerry, for 47 years, and we have four children and nine grandchildren whom we adore, all of them, of course. So, before we begin, let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you for this morning that we can all gather here to study your word. Thank you for the examples of godly people that you give us in your word to show us how to be obedient to you and loyal companions, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Please bless this morning and may it bring you and you alone glory in all we say and do. In the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. So last week, when Diana was teaching us um, 1 Samuel chapter 19, David had fled to Samuel in Ramah only to have his location reported to Saul. And Saul tracked him down in Ramah with God intervening and then causing Saul to prophesy as well as all the other messengers he had sent to Ramah, saving David. So today, in our many chapters we had to read... Um, In chapter 20, David goes back to Gibeah to seek out his loyal friend, Jonathan. So, like Diana, when I was researching this uh, companionship and, and the information about David and Jonathan, I was surprised to learn about the age difference between them. I had always assumed they were of similar age, you know, like buddies, But what we have found is that there seems to be at least 20 years between their ages. So if David was 20, Jonathan was, you know, 40. So seeing that, to me, changed the dynamics of their relationship. I now see their relationship more of like a mentor or an older brother relationship. But no matter, David and Jonathan were kindred spirits for their faithfulness in the Lord. Jonathan typified a true friend in the Lord. And it's obvious that he already knew in his heart what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And he said the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because that's how Jonathan felt about David. In chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, it reads... The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Or the NIV, I kind of like this better. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. So Jonathan obeyed God and was willing to sacrifice his own life. John 15, verse 13 says... Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, Jesus was talking about himself in this passage, but this was the attitude that Jonathan had towards David. He risked his own life to save David. What a provision God made for David to have such an encourager, mentor, and trusted friend. So again, back to chapter 18, verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So a covenant is an agreement between two people that involves promises on the part of each other. The Hebrew word for covenant means betweenness, emphasizing that relational element. A covenant is a permanent arrangement that covers a person's total being. So what do we know about this covenant between David and Jonathan? It was obviously a covenant of loyalty based on their friendship and on their commitment to God. In chapter 20, verse 8, David says, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. And we we will see that they let nothing come between them not career paths or family problems. They actually drew closer when their friendship was tested, and they remained friends until the very end. Chapter 20, verse 16 says, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him as he loved him as his own soul. I wonder if Jonathan realized when he said this at the time that David's enemies would include his own father, Saul. So chapter 20, as we begin, begins with this conversation between David and Jonathan, and it seems as we read this that Jonathan is really unaware of all the attempts Saul had made on David's life in chapter 19. So it reads as this. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So as we go on, we read, they devise this plan involving the new moon festival to test Saul to see what his true attitude is toward David. So as the story goes, Saul would not miss David until the second day. And then, note, Saul doesn't even call David by name, but he uses more of a pejorative term, son of Jesse. So he doesn't even have any affection for him at all. And he also attacks his own son, Jonathan. Jonathan was then angry over his father's behavior, and he was grieving for his friend David. Jonathan risked his own life in going to the field the next morning to inform David. But his confidence was in the Lord. As Jonathan said, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. You know, David kept this covenant with Jonathan in protecting the house of Jonathan. So here, spoiler alert, 2 Samuel comes next semester, but in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David seeks if there are any members of Saul's family alive, and he finds Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. So at that point, David restored the family farm, and Mephibosheth was to sit at the king's table like one of the king's sons. So David kept that covenant with Jonathan. So David and Jonathan were together one more time after they parted in the field. In chapter 23, when David was in the wilderness, Jonathan found David. And it's interesting, as you read, Saul had been looking day and night for David and couldn't find him because the hand of the Lord protected David. But Jonathan found David. So once again, David and Jonathan made a covenant with each other, and Jonathan helped David find strength in the Lord. He assured David that he would be king, and Jonathan would serve him. What a faithful friend, and what a contrast to Saul. So starting now in chapter 21... David becomes a nomad in the wilderness, trying to avoid Saw. So I think we have a map. If you can see this, at the very top, it's kind of small, but at the very top is Ramah and Gibeah. We're going to start, and it's actually point number three in Gibeah. And so from Gibeah, he goes not a far distance to Nob, and then he goes all the way over to Gath in the Philistine territory, which is over to the west. And then he goes slightly down to the cave of Adolam. But then he goes all the way over to the far side of Moab, which is across the Dead Sea. And then he comes back to just the edge of the Dead Sea to Gad. And then he goes all the way back up to the forest of Herath, Tequila, to Ziph, and he finally ends up in En which is on the shore of the Dead Sea. He went wherever he could go to avoid confrontation with Saul. But we know this wasn't wasted time for David because the Lord used this time and his struggles to train David to trust him. So as we read in our text, David started out alone and he went to Nob a city between Jerusalem and Gibeah. And that was the priestly city after the destruction of Shiloh. So a good place to go, to go see the priest. The priest there was Ahimelech, who we need to know is the great-grandson of Eli. And we've already learned about the curse that had been placed on the house of Eli. So Ahimelech is suspicious that someone from the king's court is coming alone. Normally, he would have an entourage. So David lies, and he says, the king has charged me with the matter, and I can't tell anyone of this matter. So this lie will come back to haunt David later, as we will see. A direct contrast between David and Saul was David had a sensitive conscience, and he wanted to please the Lord, not man. So we know this secret matter David's speaking of is really that he's running away from Saul, and he needs help. So he asked for food, but the only food available is the holy bread, or it's called the showbread, or showbread's also called the bread of presence. There were 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes kept in the sanctuary of the tabernacle and they were replaced each week with fresh loaves on the Sabbath. This bread was for the priest to eat before the face of God in God's house as a friend and guest to symbolize fellowship with God. It also symbolized the continual presence of the Lord and the people's dependence on God for their spiritual and physical needs. Jesus addressed the issue of bread by saying when he was on earth, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So with Jesus, there was no longer the need for loaves of bread in the temple. So Ahimelech was faced with the choice of disobeying by giving some of the bread to David, who was not a priest, or denying David food for his journey. Ahimelech chose the way of mercy and provided David with loaves of bread. And again, Jesus also commended Ahimelech for this choice in Matthew 12. I know that was in your homework. Matthew 12, when the Pharisees were condemning the disciples for picking grain on the Sabbath, and Jesus told them that mercy was the greater gift. David also asked if there's a weapon there, and he receives Goliath's sword. Now, I'm picturing this. I will say, I'm a visual learner, visual person, so I'm going, Goliath was nine feet, nine inches tall. His sword had to have been very large, right? So do you think that this wasn't going to stand out with David, that he's carrying this huge sword? Anyway, he was given his sword. So from Nob, then David goes to Achish, the king of Gath. Now think about this, ladies. This is in Philistine territory. And um, as I was telling the leaders yesterday, I want it's one of those things that a mother says to her children, what are you thinking? Why would you go to the enemy territory? Um, they know who you are. Um, and especially with Goliath's sword, Gath is the hometown of Goliath. So... As I pondered this, the only thing I could come up with is that he thought Saul wouldn't go there after him. He thought he would be protected from Saul and he would be saved there. But the Philistines recognized him. And it even appears that they were holding David because verse 12 says that David was afraid, so he feigned insanity before him so he could escape. So... While David didn't have traveling companions at this point, we know he wasn't alone. He knew God loved him and was with him wherever he went. So as evidence of this, this, he penned Psalm 56, which has the subtitle, When the Philistines had seized him in Gath. So Psalm 56 says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me, All day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. As they have waited for my life, for their crime will they escape in wrath. Cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So that shows what he was going through. I love how he just expresses himself to the Lord. But he also ends up praising God and thanking him. And then also from his escape from Gath, he praises the Lord in another psalm, which was Psalm 34, which was read earlier today. And there's so many lines in that that are just um, wonderful. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, fear the Lord, you who saints, for those who fear him have no lack. So while David's running for his life, he's depending on God and writing his heartfelt praise to the Lord. So meanwhile, back at the palace, Saul is still plotting how to trap David and to kill him. So there again, we see this contrast in character. Remember when Candace started it off this year, he talked about contrast in character. Contrast David and Saul. God used this time with David in the wilderness to grow him and to show David that his reliance on the Lord God was sufficient. The Lord would take care of him. We think about when Jesus went to the wilderness Jesus went to face his enemy, Satan, and defeat him. David was trying to avoid his enemy, but he was learning to trust God for the outcome and let God cause the defeat. So we're talking about the wilderness. So let's see the map. Or the, this, this is the wilderness. I said, I'm visual. I have to see, okay, where was David wandering? So this is the terrain, that David was going through. It's very unforgiving, it's mountainous, it's desert, there's forests, it's rocky, it's desolation. And it also looks to me like if David is out there wandering around by himself, he might be seen if there's anybody else around. But this is kind of where he wandered. So from Gath, he moves on to the cave of Adullam. And he writes a prayer again while staying in the cave. He's physically alone, he's in a cave, and it's possible he might have been a little bit discouraged at this point. But he wrote Psalm 142. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. So when he's at the cave, our text says in verse 22 that when David's brothers heard that David was in the cave, they went down to him. Now here's my wonder. I'm sorry, I always ask questions. If David was alone, how did his brothers know he was in the cave? It's one of those things, though, that you know the details aren't there, but it's okay. His brothers came to him in the cave, and unlike the brothers who were belittling him when he was on the battlefield, it's obviously they came to check on him and his welfare, but it's also perhaps that they were hiding from Saul also. Saul could have been threatening the house of Jesse in order to get to David. You can make that implication from verse 3 when David asked the king of Moab if his mother and father could stay in Moab for safety while he's on the run. And then also in verse 2, we read, Who else came to David in the cave? Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul or discontent gathered to him. So does this kind of gathering of people sound familiar? who else had people such as this gathered to him we know david is a type of christ he prefigures what christ would be like with his compassion and complete trust in the lord people would naturally draw to him to find hope just as they did for jesus first chronicles 12 verses 8 through 18 actually tells us who these men were it says there were some gadites defected to david at his stronghold in the desert They were brave warriors ready for battle and able to handle the shield and spear. Their faces were the faces of lions, and they were as swift as gazelles in the mountains. These Gadites were army commanders. Other Benjamites and some men from Judah also came to David in his stronghold. David received them and made them leaders of his raiding band. This was the original 400 men that was with David, along with Gad the prophet and Abi Arthur, the priest. Tim Chester says in his commentary, Opposed by the world, hunted by Saul, peopled by rejects, yet centered on king, priest, and prophet. This is an alternative Israel in the making. It would not be so very different for David's greater descendant. In Matthew 4, Jesus calls 12 disciples the basis for a new Israel. The new kingdom begins with fishermen, traitors, and terrorists. Like David, Jesus begins with a motley crew. Like David, he and his people will be opposed by the world and hurt by Israel's leaders. But it is centered on a king, a priest, and a prophet, on one man, Jesus. David's story encourages us to regard one another with the eyes of faith. God has chosen us, with all our weaknesses and our failings, to magnify his grace and shame the pride of this world." So while David's hiding, again, and gathering his band of warriors, Saul's having a little pity party for himself and wondering why no one informs him of anything. But now he never questions his own character, as we've seen throughout all the previous chapters. Of course, there's always one character who will play up to whatever side will reward him for his unscrupulous deeds. Doeg, the Edomite, who completely sells out Ahimelech, the priest. So while Ahimelech is extolling the character of David, which he didn't know wasn't a good thing to do in front of Saul, he said David was faithful. He was captain of the bodyguard, and let alone he was the king's son-in-law Saul wanted to hear nothing about that. All his evil mind can focus on is getting rid of David, and he would stop at nothing to do so, even condemning the priests to death. Thankfully, the king's servants have scruples and refuse to harm the priest, but Doeg has no such compassion or conscience. Our text tells us he kills 85 priests and all that lived in Nob, including ox, donkey, and sheep. Doeg, who was a Gentile, did to an Israelite community what Saul was supposed to do to the Gentile Amalekite community. We read, when David heard about the slaughter, he's grieved that his lie in seeking help from Ahimelech caused the death of all the priests. David understood that sin had consequences. David might not have known about the curse placed on this line of priests from Eli, that no one in the family line would live to an old age. However, whether he knew or not, he still felt guilt guilt in his part in the deception. And again, David turns his grief into a psalm. Psalm 52 Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour. O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. It's such, it's so meaningful to read these in the context of when they happened, isn't it? It just means a lot more than if you're reading them by yourself or going through the book of Psalms to say this, is, this was his heart. This is what his emotions were. This is why he's writing this. So as we go on our text in chapter 23, David inquires of the Lord regarding saving a town against the Philistines. The Lord says, go, but the men say, we're afraid. So David asks again. The Lord says, go. So David and his men rescue the people of Keilah. However, it's obvious the people of Keilah have divided loyalties between Saul and David. Do they honor David for saving them, or do they honor Saul because they know he's the king and he can make dire consequences for them if they think they supported David. So, um, once again, David and his men, now numbering 600, go back out into the wilderness, hiding in the strongholds of En Gedi. So we have another slide that shows this is the area surrounding En Gedi. Um, There again, desert, mountains, lots of caves, very barren and actually that far distance is the Dead Sea. So this is the area where David and his men are hiding from Saul. Saul Saul and his 3,000 men who's coming to look for him. So it says they came near to the wild goats' rocks. And this is an area where actually wild goats are living. And there are many caves. Um, But how is it that Saul chooses the one cave where David and his men are hiding. So you can also get a picture of how deep and how large these caves are. If David and 600 men are hiding in the back of it, it's very large. So only the Lord could orchestrate such an event, right? Circumstance for David's sake and for Saul's. So Saul's in the cave, and David's men are encouraging David to harm Saul. And remember when we read from Chronicles, these were warriors. These were fighters. And they saw an opportunity at hand. But David would not, but he cut off the corner of Saul's robe, but immediately regretted it. Why? We know that David had a tender conscience and wanted to only please the Lord, but what was significant about cutting off this piece of robe? Well, we've already seen how the robe is symbolic of the kingdom. When Saul grabbed Samuel's robe and tore it, Samuel told Saul that the kingdom would be torn from Saul. And Jonathan, giving his robe to David, symbolized Jonathan was giving up any claim to the kingdom as Saul's son. And now David, cutting the robe, symbolically indicated cutting off Saul's kingdom. Again, Tim Chester says of this, David is conscious stricken because he refused to grab the kingdom. He's willing to live on the margins until God gives him the kingdom. And the NIV here says David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. But after Saul goes back out, we find David does then go out to rebuke Saul. First paying proper respect for the office of king, note he bowed and he gave him reverence. But then he pleads his case as innocent, asking the Lord to be the judge. Saul recognizes his sin for the moment and is contrite for the moment. He does recognize David as the future king and requests like Jonathan that his offspring or his family line not be destroyed. Saul had no idea that David had already promised Jonathan that would be true. And then we have sort of an anticlimactic ending to chapter 24. Saul went home, okay? And David stayed in the stronghold. It's all this, and it's just kind of like, okay, another day. But David proved to be the more godly man in waiting for the Lord. So it says David stayed in the stronghold of Engedi. So. This is what the outside of En Gedi looks. But if we look at the next slide, we'll see what the inside of En Gedi looks. The outside's rocky, dusty, and dry. But this is where David and his men were staying. This is the respite God gave them. This is, Jerry and I were very privileged in 2019 to go to En Gedi in Israel. And it was... Um, It wasn't easy getting there. It was a quite difficult climb, boulders, rocks, dirt. But when we got there, the thing we noticed, it was just so refreshing. It was so peaceful. And that water is coming off the top of the mountain where we don't know. We saw the top of the mountain a while ago. It was dry and dusty. So only God could provide such refreshment in a wonderful place for David to stay and be refreshed. So David was waiting upon the Lord. How are you doing with that? Do you wait upon the Lord or try to figure out how you want circumstances to work out for you? We've all been there and tried to persuade God our way is best. However, David shows us that even if we have to live in the wilderness, waiting on God is the the best way. God will provide a way and a faithful friend. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for faithful friends who come alongside us, and thank you that you provide the way when there seems to be no way. Lord, I just ask your blessings on the rest of this morning, and we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.